This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start out reading from JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first article, It's Totally Irresponsible, How New York Jews Feel Watching the Unrest in Borough Park by Ben Sales. When he looks at the protests rocking the Orthodox Brooklyn neighborhood of Borough Park, Matt Nussenchuk is conflicted. He's anxious that COVID-19 rates will continue to spike in the neighborhood, threatening to plunge the whole city into a second wave. He's worried that the images and statistics out of the neighborhood will lead to a wave of anti-Semitism against the city's most visible Jews. And he's also angry at those Jews for, in his view, disregarding one of his religion's most fundamental values. It makes me feel sad, it makes me feel angry that fellow Jews in the name of Judaism would be taking positions that are so anathema to the core Jewish value of saving life, said Nosanchuk, a former Jewish liaison for Barack Obama and the founder of the New York Jewish Agenda, a liberal advocacy group. He added, we have to be vigilant in how we defend and describe these measures so that we're not feeding into anti-Semitic tropes and attitudes or dog whistles. There are ways to describe that the rules have to apply to all of us across the board. Nosanchuk's group has organized an open letter signed largely by non-Orthodox rabbis in support of the recent uh, public health restrictions on Borough Park. Earlier in the pandemic, the group organized another letter signed by a range of Jewish public figures excoriating Mayor Bill de Blasio for singling out the Jewish community for condemnation. Now, as Borough Park experiences a second wave of the virus and hundreds of Orthodox men gather in the streets for raucous protests, at times physically attacking their perceived opponents, New York Jews outside the neighborhood look on with a mix of horror apprehension, and concern. They know that Brooklyn's Hasidic Jews, like all minority groups, are not uniform. Many are observing public health guidelines even as a vocal faction opposes them. They fear that some of them will fall victim to hate crimes, and they feel shame and embarrassment that a group of the city's most readily identifiable Jews are acting in contravention to the rules that most New Yorkers are at least trying to follow. That includes Haredi or ultra-Orthodox Jews. Many, many members of Haredi communities everywhere believe that it's totally irresponsible, said Shani Beckhofer, a Haredi educator in Rockland County, New York, which also has a large Orthodox population and is experiencing a spike in infections. There is widespread embarrassment I feel very sad that so many people believe irrational, dangerous notions, and I don't know where the messaging comes from. Of course, Beckhofer said she knows the source of some of the opposition to the restrictions, support for Donald Trump, or for Heshi Tischler, a local demagogue following the president's lead in disparaging social distancing guidelines. She worries that Tischler's rabble-rousing will not only spread the virus, but also lead to a wave of anti-Semitic acts. I'm afraid that people are tragically going to get themselves and others sick, she said, and I'm also very concerned about an anti-Semitic backlash against this public high-risk behavior. 
I don't understand what makes people like this Tischler guy think that he has the right to endanger everybody for his moment of fame or whatever it is. It's a damaging narrative and it's inherently wrong. Beckhoffer and others noted that support for Trump wasn't the only factor contributing to low levels of mask wearing and compliance with the restrictions. Because the virus hits the Haredi, hit the Haredi community hard earlier in the year, some Orthodox Jews believe without scientific justification that their communities have herd immunity. In addition, in a community with deep respect for religious leaders, not all prominent rabbis have pushed mask wearing. Reports of Haredi Jews being accosted in Brooklyn have circulated on social media in recent days. Last week, an Orthodox man was assaulted on the Coney Island boardwalk. This week, there were two more reports of Orthodox Jews being verbally harassed. A recent video that made the rounds on social media appeared to show an Orthodox man speaking on a cell phone without a mask, far from people when someone yells at him, put your effing mask on. Put your mask on. There's COVID cases. Hurry it up. Put it on. For some, the incidents bring back painful memories of the wave of attacks on Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn and greater New York City last year, which indicated two lethal anti-Semitic attacks, which included two lethal and anti-Semitic attacks in Jersey City and Muncie, New York. A New York Police Department spokesperson told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency Wednesday that year to date, 2020 has seen half as many anti-Semitic attacks as the same period of 2019, though that includes a period of several months when people were hardly going outside, making anti-Semitic street harassment less likely. Local Jewish activists are worried that now that people are outside and animosity is rising against Orthodox Jews, the attacks will uh, resume. Rabbi Jill Jacobs, who lives in Manhattan and signed the letter organized by Nussenchuk in support of the recent public health measures, called the neighborhood's recent protests a Hillel Hashem, or desecration of God's name, a term that denotes public behavior by Jews that reflects poorly on all Jews. She says she's already seen messages on her neighborhood Facebook groups that recall age-old stereotypes about Jews spreading disease. Images of Jews attacking other Jews and protesting public health at a gut level. It's just embarrassing, said Jacobs, the executive director of TRUA, a liberal rabbinic human rights organization. There's a fear that anybody who has any anti-Semitic inclinations is going to look at that and make all sorts of assumptions about Jews. This is especially terrifying in a context in which Haredi Jews have been attacked on the street on a fairly regular basis. Jacobs, as well as others, said that the key in discussing the Borough Park protests was not to generalize the protesters' conduct to implicate all Haredi Jews. Stephen Auerbach, a Jewish epidemiologist who recently worked for the city helping hospitals manage the COVID-19 crisis, said there are plenty of communities across the country where people are behaving similarly to residents of Borough Park. No community is monolithic, he said, we should never talk about the Haredi community or the Orthodox community or the Hasidic community. It's always made up of individuals and there is always some diversity of opinion in any community. We've seen it with pro-mask people from within the community being attacked. Even in the most Republican districts, there's usually a third of people who vote Democratic. Same here. There are always individuals with a different opinion. 
That's why when Auerbach looks at the scenes in Borough Park, he does not view it in Jewish terms. To him, it's one of several densely populated communities that suffered high death rates early in the pandemic and, like many such communities in the United States, now has a vocal group rebelling against the rules. I do not view this as, ah, those ultra-Orthodox crazies, he said. Even at the gut level, I don't. As a public health doctor, I see it as the same thing as what's going on in many communities with too many people, not everybody, listening to false information. And next from JTA, also from Ben Sales, Orthodox support for Trump is skyrocketing, survey finds. A new poll shows overwhelming support for President Donald Trump among Orthodox Jews. The poll, published Wednesday by Ami magazine, found that 83% of Orthodox respondents plan to vote for Trump in the upcoming election, while just 13% plan to vote for Joe Biden. Those numbers represent a dramatic increase from a 2017 poll by the American Jewish Committee, which found that 54% of Orthodox Jews had voted for Trump in 2016. The AMI poll, which was conducted over the past month by an unnamed firm, also found low support among Orthodox Jews for public health restrictions due to COVID-19. The survey includes 1,000 respondents and has a 3.1% margin of error. The poll's numbers put Orthodox Jews politically out of step with American Jews overall, the vast majority of whom oppose Trump and generally vote in large numbers for Democratic candidates. According to a recent survey by the Pew Research Center, only 27% of American Jews plan to vote for Trump as opposed to 70% for Biden. Those numbers are statistically equivalent to the 71% of Jews who voted for Hillary Clinton over Trump in 2016, according to Pew. Orthodox Jews have trended right over the past few decades, voting increasingly for Republican presidential candidates, starting with George W. Bush. They tend to view Republicans as more pro-Israel than Democrats and accord more with Republican views of religious freedom. The AMI poll places Orthodox support for Trump at a higher level than any other religious group in the United States. The Pew survey found that the highest level of support for Trump came from evangelical Christians, with 78% saying they plan to vote for the president. The Pew did not report a result for Orthodox Jews. The AMI poll also found that Haredi or ultra-Orthodox Jews are far likelier to vote for Trump than modern Orthodox Jews, a stunning 95% of Haredi Jews said they plan to vote for Trump, as opposed to 56% of modern Orthodox Jews. The poll found that Trump has shed some modern Orthodox support since last year, when Ami found that 70% of modern Orthodox respondents approved of the job he was doing. The margin of error for modern Orthodox Jews in the 2020 poll was approximately 4.8%. The poll also found that Orthodox Jews support public health restrictions aimed at containing COVID-19 far less than Americans as a whole. A majority of Orthodox respondents, 58%, believe that government health organizations, uh, health regulations, are excessive or unnecessary, or that the virus poses no threat at all. Only 32% said that the threat is real and that government guidelines should be followed and only 18% of Haredi respondents. While not directly comparable, an August poll shows that a large majority of Mer Americans vastly support 
a mask mandate. The Ami poll was published following days of unrest in Borough Park over recently imposed public health restrictions aimed at responding to a spike in COVID-19 cases in the heavily Orthodox neighborhood. And next from JTA, Donald Trump denounces white supremacy, but not QAnon. Under fire for his past equivocations on white supremacy, President Donald Trump denounced the phenomenon in a town hall but claimed to be ignorant of QAnon. I denounce white supremacy, Trump said Thursday in an exchange with the NBC moderator Savannah Guthrie. What's your next question? Trump showed exasperation at the question, saying he has denounced the phenomenon multiple times. Guthrie said he had in the past hesitated, noting that in his debate two weeks ago with Democratic nominee Joe Biden, he told an extremist right-wing group, the Proud Boys, to stand back and stand by when he was asked to denounce white supremacists. You always start off with that question. You don't ask Joe Biden whether or not he denounces Antifa, Trump said, referring to a loosely affiliated movement of left-wing groups that sometimes use violence. Trump declined, however, to denounce QAnon, a movement that peddles a conspiracy theory that accuses Democrats of running pedophile rings and sees Trump as a secret savior. In some iterations, QAnon enthusiasts advance anti-Semitic slanders. I hate to say that I know nothing about it, Trump said. I do know that they are very much against pedophilia. Guthrie pressed Trump, describing the group's delusions. Trump would not accept her description. What I do hear about is they are very strongly against pedophilia, and I agree with that, Trump said. Trump was to have debated Biden on Thursday, but pulled out when the debate commission changed the format to a virtual debate after Trump contracted the coronavirus. Instead, NBC broadcast a Trump town hall from Miami, and ABC broadcast a Biden town hall from Philadelphia. One of Biden's questioners, a Trump voter named Mark Hoffman, asked Biden why he would not praise Trump's foreign policy successes, including the recent normalization agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, which Hoffman called a modern miracle. Biden said Trump's foreign policy was diminishing America's profile. We are more isolated in the world than we have ever been, Biden said, but added, I do compliment the president on the deal with Israel recently, but you know, if you take a look, we're not very well trusted around the world. And next from JTA, also from Ben Sales, Jewish security officials have a message for Election Day. Be prepared for violence. On Thursday, the FBI had a message for Jewish institutions across the country prepare for the possibility of violence on Election Day. That was the main takeaway from a webinar hosted Thursday afternoon by the Secure Community Network, which coordinates security for Jewish institutions across the country. Current and former federal, federal officials told the Jewish leaders in attendance that as of now there are no known threats to Jewish institutions on Election Day, but Jews should still prepare for the possibility of violence on November 3rd or after. We have not identified any specific threats relative to domestic violent extremists or international terrorist organizations, said Calvin Shivers, a assistant director of the FBI's Criminal Investigative Division. But he added the nation remains poised for potential volatility in regard to not only the election, but I think just a lot of things that are going on in the country. Shivers said that in addition to its usual election monitoring activities, the FBI is establishing a national command post specifically to address potential civic unrest. 
The webinar was hosted specifically for the hundreds of Jewish institutions like synagogues, schools, or community centers that either serve as polling places or are located near them. Less than three weeks from Election Day, federal and state officials have been warning of a rising tide of extremism that could crest into a wave of violence, especially if there's an ambiguous result or if the preferred candidate of right-wing extremist groups, President Donald Trump, appears to be losing. Over the past several years, and in particular since the shooting in Pittsburgh, synagogues across the country have taken steps to increase their security through armed guards, cameras, or other measures. Synagogues were particularly vigilant when, during non-pandemic times, their buildings would be crowded for the most important services of the year. Brad Orsini, who served as the Pittsburgh Jewish Community Director, uh, Director of Security during and after the 2018 synagogue shooting there, said that in terms of the potential threat, Jewish institutions should view November 3rd with the same degree of seriousness as Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Treat this election season like the high holidays, said Orsini, who now serves as the Secure Community Network's Senior National Security Advisor. Although we have no credible threats, we know the temperature of the country right now. We need to prepare as if something bad could occur. John Cohen, the former counterterrorism coordinator for the Department of Homeland Security, said the current environment is one in which extremists may seek to disrupt the election or use the election season as an opportunity to incite violence. Some who are running for office today have incorporated into their political playbook a spread of conspiracy theories and divisive narratives from their perspective to aid their political opportunity, but can also have the effect of inspiring destructive or violent behavior, he said. Cohen described a multi-year rise in violent extremist violence that includes an increase in hate crimes and other criminal activity by white supremacists and anti-government extremists. I can't think of a time since 9-11 where I have had more concern about security issues associated with polling sites or the election generally, he said. There's a segment of America who view this election as rigged or at risk of being stolen, prompting calls in conspiracy and extremist cycles for poll watchers, and even violence during the election and after the voting has concluded. Orsini said Jewish institutions need to take concrete actions before Election Day to prepare for the possibility of unrest if they're near polling stations. If you're not a polling station and some type of civil unrest occurs, we need to be prepared to close our building, shutter our facility if something bad happens. We want to have a plan that if we have to quickly shut down, that we do so. And next from JTA, When Christian is Jewish, Living a Jewish Life with a Non-Jewish Name, by Josephine Dolston. Christian Goldenbaum is used to people doing a double take after he introduces himself. Almost every single day while living abroad in New York, London, and Jerusalem, the 28-year-old Sao Paulo native was asked, how come a guy named Goldenbaum gets a name like Christian. Several times, Jew, uh, religious Jews have expressed discomfort with his name. An Orthodox rabbi once insisted on calling him by his Hebrew name Avraham, 
and his grandmother's second husband would call him the boy growing up to avoid saying his first name. Another time, an elderly man demanded he change his name. He was very obviously aggressive. He was basically saying, you're not one of us with this name, Goldenbaum recalled. Many who meet Goldenbaum are reacting to the apparent conflict in his full name. While his last name is stereotypically Jewish, his first name contains the name of the Christian Messiah. That combination is rare, but he's not alone. Fox News host Chris Wallace is perhaps the most famous example of a Jew with a traditionally Christian name. Wallace's Jewish parents decided to name their son Christopher after he was born on Columbus Day, according to a New York Times profile of him, which in its first sentence describes him as a child of two Jews who keeps a rosary by his bedside. The rosary is a gift from his Catholic wife whom Wallace accompanies to church on Christmas and Easter. Wallace, born in 1947, was named at a time when American Jewish naming practices were undergoing a shift. Though the earliest American Jews were likely to give their children biblical names, it wasn't long before Jews started trying to fit into American naming conventions, according to historian Gary Zola, who said that in the 19th century, it wasn't rare to find Jews named after George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and other prominent American leaders. With time, Jews started increasingly gravitating toward more general American names. They might give their kid a name like James or Isidore, which is more Americanized instead of Israel. Instead of Shalom or Shmuel, they became Seymour or Sai. And then you use your Hebrew name that you're given in synagogue, said Zola, who is the executive director of the Jacob Rader Center of the American Jewish Archives and a professor at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati. This trend continued until the middle of the 20th century when names seen as further from the tradition started entering the community. In some cases, non-religious Jews liked a certain name, like Christopher, and didn't view it as necessarily having ties to another religion. That kind of thing is rare, but it does happen in the post-World War II period, Zola said. They like the name, and therefore they'll give it to their children. Intermarriage or conversions also mean that a Jewish convention honoring deceased relatives when naming children can cause names that originated in other religions to be passed down. Hannah Christensen, a 20-year-old student at Barnard College in New York, got her last name from her non-Jewish father who has Norwegian roots. At times, she said, she feels she has to overcompensate for people to know that she is Jewish. At the end of her first year of college, she met a friend who worked as a recruiter for Birthright Israel through a Hillel event. The friend didn't try to get Christensen to sign up for an Israel trip, which Birthright makes free for Jews ages 20 to, uh, 18 to 26, because she assumed, based on Christensen's name, that she was not Jewish. At times, Christensen feels self-conscious about uh, talking about Judaism because she worries how her comments will be perceived by those who assume she is not Jewish. That is the case in a course she is taking this semester about Judaism. I would sometimes speak in it, and it has the name pop up in the corner because it's on Zoom, and I just remembered after talking, uh, feeling really weird because I realized that the people in the class don't know I'm Jewish, so it kind of sounds like I'm making assumptions about the Jewish community that I'm not qualified to make, she says.
In certain contexts, she has found that it offers some benefit to be able to pass as not Jewish. In very leftist and anti-Zionist spaces, I would feel a bit uncomfortable asking about my Judaism, and so I don't say anything, Christensen said. The assumptions that go along with being Jewish can make it a little uncomfortable to disclose that sometimes, and I feel like I do have a privilege that I'm able not to disclose it in certain places. The story behind Goldenbaum's name is a little different. His maternal grandparents are Jews from Germany who fled to Brazil before World War II and wanted their grandchild to have a German-sounding name as a nod to their heritage. His paternal grandparents, on the other hand, came from Egypt and fled their home country in the, in the 1950s when tens of thousands of Jews were driven out. His paternal grandfather's family was originally from Europe, hence the name Goldenbaum. That trauma left his father especially wanting his son to have a name that would allow him to pass as a non-Jew. Thus, the family settled on Christian. Goldenbaum says the name has less overtly Christian connotations in his native Brazil. In Portuguese, the word for a Christian person is Cristão. Here, when I say my name, people don't usually think about, this guy is a Jewish person named Christian. They don't even realize that, he said. In Canada, Justin Christopher Tobin's name has certainly raised some eyebrows, he said, though he doesn't usually introduce himself with his middle name. The 23-year-old student at the Memorial University of Newfoundland said uh, faced challenges when he tried entering Israel as a participant and later a staffer on birthright trips a few years ago. At the airport, he was questioned by LL agents about how a Jew could be named Christopher. It almost hurt to hear that I wasn't Jewish enough or somehow I was an imposter, even though I knew I wasn't, and I knew I had every, literally, birthright to be there. It can be intimidating, recalled Tobin, who was named after his Irish Catholic father. He has also been met with confusion in synagogue while called to read from the Torah and in giving his father's name when being asked about his parents' names. But the experiences haven't mitigated Tobit's pride in his name and his heritage. His family includes people with Jewish, Irish, Catholic, and indigenous Canadian roots. I'm pretty proud of my name, he said. It's one of those things that I don't like when it comes up and someone makes a big deal of it. But at the same time, it's a chance to educate and it's a chance to share with someone, hey, just because you're from a fully Jewish background, I'm not, and that's okay. Next from JTA, new program for Jews of color aims to diversify Jewish organizations. Two Jewish organizations have launched a career development program for Jews of color in an effort to diversify the Jewish organizational landscape. The Jews of Color Initiative, a San Francisco-based organization formerly known as the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative, and Upstart, an Oakland-based group that works with Jewish entrepreneurs and leaders, announced the launch of the program Monday with an inaugural class of eight young Jews of color. As part of a six-week program, participants ages 18 to 25 are paired with Jewish organizations and will participate in leadership development programs. Leadership of Jewish community organizations today simply does not reflect the diversity of the Jewish community itself. Angel Alvarez Mapp, Director of Program and Operations at the Jews of Color Initiative, said in a statement, to change this, we need support to support people and nurture their professional growth at the earliest stages of their careers. We are excited to work with Upstart to pursue this vision. 
Studies suggest that 6 to 15 percent of the American Jewish community are people of color, though definitions of who is included under that term vary. Though Jewish organizations have begun paying attention to diversity in their ranks, particularly in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter protests this summer, Jews of color continue to be few and far between in Jewish organizations, especially in leadership roles. In June, three Jewish activists of color organized an open letter calling on Jewish organizations to endorse the Black Lives Matter movement and set specific benchmarks to increase diversity. Our vision of Jewish communities as thriving hubs of innovation relies on bold leadership on a systemic level, and we see that leadership falling short of empowering the full diversity of our communities, said Danielle Nadelson, a design strategist at Upstart. British journalist leaves BBC after discovery that he backed allegedly anti-Semitic rapper. A journalist resigned from the BBC after a British Jewish newspaper revealed he had defended a rapper accused of anti-Semitism. Nimesh Thacker, who worked at BBC World News until this week, used an anonymous Twitter account to defend the rapper Wiley, who made a number of statements on Twitter this summer deemed anti-Semitic. After a Jewish radio host named Emma Barnett referenced Wiley's remarks in speaking about her family's Holocaust history, Thacker wrote that she was using the same old anti-Semitism excuse whenever people criticize Israel. The Jewish Chronicle of London last month traced the account back to Thaler. Over the summer, Wiley tweeted, I don't care about Hitler, I care about black people, and there are two sets of people who nobody has really wanted to challenge, Jewish and KKK, but being in business for 20 years, you start to understand why. He later apologized for the statements, but then made new ones deemed anti-Semitic. Thacker has used his anonymous Twitter account to defend Jeremy Corbyn, the previous Labour Party leader who has been uh, described as an anti-Semite by the current and previous chief rabbis of Britain. The BBC declined to comment on Thacker, the Chronicle reported. German fraternity where a Jewish member was assaulted has far-right ties, officials say. The German government officials that said a university fraternity where a Jewish member was assaulted and pelted with coins has ties to far-right movements. The Interior Ministry of the Western German state of Baden-Württemberg on Tuesday published its findings about an August assault at the fraternity of Normania in Heidelberg, the seat of Germany's oldest university. The fraternity has suspended activities at its house pending an inquiry. According to the ministry, the fraternity, which was founded in 1890, is linked to the Identitarian Movement, a far-right political movement active in many European countries. The ministry began probing the fraternity after a 25-year-old member complained to police that he was assaulted by several young men at the fraternity house who whipped him with belts and threw coins at his face after learning he was Jewish. Some of the students were visiting from outside Heidelberg, the Rhyme Nekar Zeitung reported. In a statement last month, fraternity chairman Gunnar Heydrich denied that his body had any far-right affiliations or anti-Semitic policies. The Normania fraternity cooperates fully with the authorities whose investigations are not directed against the Normania fraternity but against individual persons, he wrote. If the allegations against any of its members are substantiated, the Normania fraternity will also draw appropriate conclusions internally. Anti-Semitism and violent attacks are incompatible with the fraternity idea. 
In a late bid to boost President Donald Trump's re-election prospects, Sheldon and Miriam Adelson reportedly gave $75 million to a political action committee running ads targeting Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. Politico on Thursday quoted someone close to the Preserve America PAC who said the bulk of the $84 million that the PAC has brought in since its creation at the end of August came from the Adelsons. Sheldon Adelson is a Las Vegas-based casino magnate who, along with his wife, are major givers to Jewish and pro-Israel causes as well as to medical research. The PAC is spending the money on negative ads in swing states, Politico reported. Also giving to the PAC is Bernie Marcus, the Home Depot founder who is a powerhouse at Atlanta's Jewish community. Marcus gave $5 million, the report said. The Adelsons last month indicated they were ready to pour another $50 million into efforts to preserve Republican control of the White House and Senate. Trump is trailing Biden in the polls and in fundraising ahead of the November 3rd election. San Diego rabbi assaulted outside his synagogue. A rabbi was assaulted outside of his synagogue in San Diego, and an Orthodox man was beaten on the street in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Williamsburg. The San Diego incident occurred October 10th and was the latest in a series of escalating acts of harassment against congregants of the Shiviti congregation, Rabbi Yonatan Halevi told San Diego's 10 News. Halevi was the victim of the latest incident in which a teenager riding a bicycle hit him on the head and yelled a racial slur at him outside the synagogue in University City a large residential and commercial district next to the University of California's San Diego campus. Every day they come by here, taunt us, throwing bottles at us, sitting on our roof, blasting music, and then breaking a window to my van, Halevi said. Last but not least, what happened on Saturday. In Williamsburg, video footage posted to Twitter on Thursday night showed a man in Orthodox Jewish garb approached him from behind by individuals who began hitting and kicking him. The assailants left the scene within seconds of the assault. The Twitter account that posted the video, Williamsburg News, said the incident had occurred near the uh, intersection of Throop Avenue and Bartlett Street and that police and local Jewish community groups had responded. A man who plotted to blow up a synagogue in Colorado has pleaded guilty to federal hate crimes and explosives charges. Richard Holzer, a self-described skinhead, and former Ku Klux Klan member who used Facebook to promote white supremacy, was arrested last November for plotting to blow up a 100-year-old synagogue in Pueblo, Colorado. The synagogue, Temple Emanuel, has 35-member families. Holter was arrested after plotting with a man he thought was a co-conspirator, but who was actually an FBI agent. Holzer had previously attempted to poison the synagogue's water supply with arsenic. This is the most important work that we can do, protecting our communities by stopping an attack before it occurred, the Colorado U.S. Attorney Jason Dunn said in a statement. A Department of Homeland Security report released this month concluded that white supremacists pose the biggest domestic terror threat in the United States. Former British Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs announced he has been diagnosed with cancer and is undergoing treatment. In his statement posted to his Twitter feed Thursday afternoon, Sachs's office said he had begun uh, he had been recently diagnosed with an unspecified cancer and hoped to return to work as soon as possible. 
He remains positive and upbeat and will now spend a period of time focused on the treatment he is receiving from his excellent medical team, the statement said. He is looking forward to returning to his work as soon as possible. Sachs, 72, has been treated for cancer twice before in his 30s and again in his 50s, a fact that wasn't widely known until it was disclosed in a 2012 book. Sachs served as chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth from 1991 until 2013 and is among the most prominent expositors of Orthodox Judaism in the world, having authored dozens of books addressing contemporary spiritual and moral issues. A translation and commentary on a Jewish prayer book that he wrote has become enormously popular worldwide. His most recent book, Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times, came out last month. Israel and Lebanese officials began direct negotiations over their maritime border in the Mediterranean Sea, marking the first time the two nations have consulted over a non-security issue in decades. Officials from both sides who met Wednesday in the Lebanese border town of Nakora stressed that the discussions were not a step toward normalization of relations, the New York Times reported. Two of Israel's Arab neighbors, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, have recently signed peace deals with Israel, opening the door for full diplomatic relations and increased trade and tourism. Lebanon and Israel are technically still at war, having never signed an official peace treaty after decades of conflict, beginning right after Israel's founding. The Lebanese militant group Hezbollah is one of the region's most uh, main violent aggressors against Israel. We're not talking about peace talks or negotiations over normalization, but rather about the attempt to solve a technical economic problem that for decades has been preventing us from developing natural resources in the sea for the benefit of the people of the region, Israeli Energy Minister Yuval Steinitz said Monday, according to the Times of Israel. At stake in the talks, which are being mediated by the United Nations and the United States, is a zone of over 300 square miles full of natural gas that is claimed by both countries. Lebanon hopes an agreement would help its ailing economy, which has one of the highest GDP-to-debt ratios in the world. The next meeting in the process is scheduled for October 28th. And next from JTA, the traditional Jewish prayer Gal Gadot says every day by Lior Salzman. Vanity Fair just released an incredible comprehensive interview with Wonder Woman star Gal Gadot. There are a lot of fun tidbits around uh, about the Israeli actress's career, her somewhat unpopular stint singing Imagine with other celebrities early in the pandemic, feminism, and her propensity for ending sentences with da-da-da. Apparently it's Gadot's version of yada yada yada. There's also some truly excellent pictures that were shot with an all-Israeli crew at Caesarea Beach, and Gadot also made a video as part of the article on Hebrew slang words. As an Israeli, Gadot is very open about her Jewish identity, speaking out against anti-Semitism, sharing pictures of her family celebrating Jewish holidays, and talking about her grandfather, an Auschwitz survivor, and how he impacted her life. And at the end of the Vanity Fair piece, she talks about how one Jewish prayer in particular helps keep her grounded. I say thank you every morning. In the Jewish culture, there's a prayer that you're supposed to say every time you wake up in the morning to thank God for, you know, keeping you alive, and da-da-da-da. You say, ani, which means I give thanks, she told Vanity Fair's Nancy Joe Sales. So every morning I wake up and step out of bed and I say thank you for everything. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, 
thank you. Nothing is to be taken for granted. Modet Ani is, of course, the traditional Jewish prayer recited upon waking up each day. It offers thanks to God for letting us regain consciousness after a long night's sleep. I thank you, living and enduring King, for you have graciously returned my soul within me. Great is your faithfulness is one translation of the prayer's Hebrew text. It's so lovely to think this super successful Jewish actress, the, her, the third highest paid actress this year, according to Forbes, offering gratitude to God every day. Gadot's career is seriously on fire, and she has many incredible upcoming roles. The anticipated reprise of Wonder Woman in Wonder Woman 1984, playing Jewish actress and inventor Hedy Lamarr, and portraying Holocaust hero Irena Sendler. Then there's her newly announced controversial upcoming role as Cleopatra. Another Jewish star who played the role despite controversy was Elizabeth Taylor. Yet at the end, or rather the beginning of each day, she doesn't take anything for granted. As a mom, I have to, I have to also thank Gadot for her very relatable and very real pronouncements on parenthood. I'm all types of moms. It depends what days you're asking, she told the magazine. I'm very connected to them, and I'm very warm, and I make sure to keep the channels of communication open, and we talk about feelings and stuff like that. And then sometimes I let it go and don't interrupt them because I've learned when you're too involved, you can actually create problems. I can be hysterical at times, she says. I can be goofy. We laugh a lot. I can have a lot of patience, but when I lose it, it's not great. She adds, laughing, I think that every mom can relate to this, that once you have a baby, you get a huge sack of guilt, which is something that I'm dealing with all the time. But I realized I can only try and be the best version of a mom that I can be. So I just try to do my best and give them everything I can. I'm very much feeling the huge sack of guilt right now. Thanks, pandemic parenting. But it's nice to know that someone like Gadot feels it too. Stars, they're just like us, plus regal seaside photo shoots. HBO Max has bought the rights to Valley of Tears, a drama about the 1973 Yom Kippur War that is being touted as Israel's biggest budget TV series to date. The ten-part series depicts the war through the eyes of young soldiers through four different plot lines. No premiere date has yet been announced. It stars Lior Ashkenazi, familiar to international audiences from his role in Israel's acclaimed film Foxtrot, and his work opposite Richard Gere in Norman, The Moderate Rise and Tragic Fall of a New York Fixer. There is a significant talent behind the scenes as well. It was created and co-written by Israeli-American writer Ron Lashem, who wrote HBO's Euphoria, and Amit Cohen, who wrote the popular Israeli uh, thriller series False Flag. The pair are also ready at work on another Israeli series called Traitor, a thriller currently in post-production. The video-sharing social network TikTok removed the channel of Lahava, a far-right Israeli group that opposes Jewish-Arab coexistence and gay relationships. The group is led by Benny Gopstein, who was banned from running in Israeli elections last year as head of the right-wing Jewish Power Party due to anti-Arab statements considered incitement to racism. TikTok first took down three of Lahava's videos and then completely removed the channel after receiving complaints about its content. The channel was permanently blocked over repeated violations of our community conduct regulations, TikTok said in a statement, according to the Lahava website. 
And next from JTA, Israeli Orthodox leader, Judaism does not forbid same-sex couples from building a family by Joseph and Dolstein. A prominent Israeli Orthodox rabbi said that Jewish law does not forbid LGBTQ people from building a family. Rabbi Benny Lau made the statement as part of a set of guidelines for observant LGBTQ Jews and their families released Saturday evening under the heading, It is not good for man to be alone. The guidelines published on Lau's Facebook page seek to reconcile a desire to welcome LGBTQ Jews into Jewish communities within the constraints of religious law. According to Lau, Jewish law does not forbid members of the LGBTQ community from raising children and building a family, though he acknowledges that Jewish legal issues may arise for couples who use surrogacy or a sperm donor in order to have children. Lau also discouraged family members of LGBTQ Jews from encouraging conversion therapy, a debunked practice that seeks to change someone's sexual orientation. The rabbi said those attracted to members of the same sex should not attempt to enter heterosexual marriage if they are repulsed by their partner. And he affirmed that LGBTQ couples and their children should be full members of the community and that their dignity should not be harmed. He emphasized that the guidelines are not meant as a ruling on matters of Jewish law, but are aimed at finding ways for LGBTQ Jews to manage their family lives within religious communities. Lau is affiliated with Israel's religious Zionist camp, an orthodox movement that is more integrated into Israeli society than the Haredi Orthodox community. In the past, he has drawn ire from some in his community for his progressive positions on a range of issues, including LGBTQ acceptance. Like the modern Orthodox community in the United States, Israel's religious Zionist community has struggled in recent years with the tension between the Torah's prohibition on homosexual relationships and the increased acceptance of LGBTQ people in the secular world. The guidelines are significant because of Lao's prominence and because few Orthodox rabbis have been willing to speak out in favor of LGBTQ acceptance. Lau's guidelines address this issue of same-sex weddings, for which he says there is no acceptable solution within, uh, with a Jewish religious framework. Still, he said the impulse to marry and have one's relationship publicly affirmed is understandable and should not be ignored. Creating an alternative ceremony that does not attempt to imitate a traditional Jewish wedding may reduce the reluctance of religious family members to participate. Lau was previously the rabbi of the Ramban Synagogue, a prominent Orthodox congregation in Jerusalem. He is the nephew of former Israeli Chief Rabbi Yisrael Meyer Lau and the cousin of David Lau, the current Chief Rabbi. His brother, Amichai Lau Lavi, is an openly gay rabbi living in New York. A march on Saturday against the movement for a new constitution in Chile contained Nazi and anti-Semitic symbols, slogans, and gestures. Some protesters at the march in Las Condes, a municipality located in Chile's Santiago province, wore Nazi symbols and made Hitler salutes. Others flew flags with swastikas and shirts with the initials ATP, short for Anti-Immigration ATP Movement, whose slogan is Chile for Chileans. The movement states that it is openly anti-globalist and anti-progressivism in and its political correctness. Germany 1930? No, Chile October 2020. 
hate takes over the streets of Chile, tweeted Marcelo Isaacson, executive director of the Comunidad Judía de Chile, the country's umbrella Jewish organization. Since last year, Chile, has, uh, which has one of the highest rates of income inequality in the Western Hemisphere, has been rocked by protests calling for a new constitution. Critics of the government say that leftover rules in place from the period of autocratic rule under Augusto Pinochet hamper social change. Israel's ambassador to Chile, Marina Rosenberg, and other Jewish organizations followed suit in condemning the march. Enough. It is shameful that a rally against reforming the Chilean constitution included Nazi salutes and anti-Israel signs. The Chilean government must do more to fight anti-Semitism and all forms of hate, tweeted the American Jewish Committee. Protesters expressed anti-Israel sentiment at the march as well. According to Comunidad Judea de Chile President Gerardo Gerodischer, there are nearly uh, 500,000 Palestinians and their descendants in Chile. The overwhelming majority are Christian and have immigrated from West Bank Village. Poland's Senate passed a law that will end its $1.8 billion kosher and halal meat export industry in 2025. Religious communities will still be able to slaughter meat without prior stunning, as is required by Jewish and Muslim law, as long as the meat is not for export. A vote Wednesday approved the law that was introduced last month in the government's lower house and was originally intended to go into effect in 2022. Poland has about 20,000 Jews and a similar number of Muslims. The bulk of its many kosher and halal slaughterhouses produce meat for export. Critics say that killing animals without stunning them is cruel. Proponents of the practice say it is relatively painless. A Polish farmer and meat producer union successfully fought to have the law postponed in connection with the economic crisis brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. Rabbi Menachem Margolin, the head of the Brussels-based European Jewish Association, which has lobbied against the Polish legislation, has argued that Poland is a major provider of kosher meat to the rest of Europe and beyond. Margolin called the amendment delaying the bill encouraging, but said his organization will continue to fight for the scrapping of the legislation. Germany has pledged an extra $662 million toward helping Holocaust survivors during the coronavirus pandemic. The money will be given out in two payments over the next two years to some 240,000 survivors around the world, especially in Israel, the United States, and Western Europe. The New York-based Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany told the Associated Press on Wednesday. Two grants of about $1,400 each will go chiefly to Jews who are not already receiving financial support from Germany earmarked for victims of the Nazis. Greg Schneider, executive vice president of the Claims Conference, told the AP that about half of Holocaust survivors in the United States live in Brooklyn and were particularly hard hit by the financial efforts of the pandemic. The new payments come in addition to the $4.3 million in emergency funding that the Claims Conference has given to agencies providing aid to Holocaust survivors. And next, an opinion piece. Anti-Semitism, white supremacy, and swords. Talia Lavin dives into the most hateful corners of the Internet by Emily Barak. After over a year of immersing herself into the darkest depths of white supremacy on the Internet, Talia Lavin remains hopeful. 
Lavin, a Jewish reporter, went undercover into some of the most toxic chat rooms in the alt, uh, that the alt-right has to offer and is now telling her story and the story of the rise of white supremacy in America in Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. When I became the target of the far right, I felt my identity sort of burning inside of me, Lavin explained to me one afternoon in late August. As a Jewish woman, I was the brunt of all this anti-Semitism and misogyny. The misogyny is very overt. The threats and abuses are incredibly sexualized. It's very key to my appearance. It's really hard to disentangle these things, but because of my identity, I was targeted with a viciousness. And because of that viciousness, I decided to turn around and dive in. Not to disengage, but rather to turn towards the darkness and to fight it. Lavin, who previously worked for Alma's parent company, 70 Faces Media, credits her experience at Jewish Telegraphic Agency as something that made her reconceive of anti-Semitism as something that was alive and present, particularly thriving on the Internet. We discussed going undercover, social media platforms, bringing white supremacists into the light, and collecting swords, among many other things. Here, uh, what follows is the interview, condensed lightly and edited for clarity. I love how in the intro of your book you write that to describe white supremacists is to deprive them of the power to organize in total darkness, that writing about them is bringing them into the light. Can you talk about this concept? One of the things that people who are attracted to far-right extremism crave is inspiring fear, being the boogeyman, and I do think they are quite dangerous, but to give them this mystique and to say it's this insurmountable problem that it's not even worth understanding the details gives them the power that they haven't earned and shouldn't have. When you really delve into the details, when you look at the roots, when you expose where these sentiments are coming from, what they're rooted in, who is expressing them and why, you get a much better sense of the threat, and you also rob it of this sense of mystery. That is so crucial. So much of far-right extremist imagery is the skull mask, the shields, and these sort of elements of disguise. When you pull off that skull mask and you show the face beneath, I think that you rob them of the power that of that sort of vicious Cheshire grin. How do you personally navigate the internet and social media? How do you deal with your trolls? Well, I collect swords and I have a crippling panic disorder. No, but seriously, I got my first sword courtesy of my dad at a Lord of the Rings convention at age 14. And then, on my 30th birthday, I went to Medieval Times. I started researching this book and I said, I want to get a sword. I was starting to encounter these stories of anti-fascists and journalists who had, their fa who had had their families threatened, even people coming to their houses, and my parents had received a threat, and I just said, I would like a blade. And then over the course of the past year, I've acquired two more. So now I have three swords and a dagger that I keep with me wherever I live. I'm not like a sword-wielding expert. I mostly use them for selfies, but I know a few basic moves, and it gives me a probably... Probably a false sense of security, but at least a sense of, like, if someone, if someone comes at me, I will grab my blade and have something to parry with. And then I have a lot of panic attacks. I'm very outwardly bold and fearless, but on the inside, I'm a writhing mass of neurosis held together by tape and glue. But I think if I had to decide whether to dive into this world again, knowing the internal chaos it has provoked, I would do it again. In the book, you write about going undercover 
into white supremacist chat rooms? How did you keep yourself calm and sane while spending time in these really terrible forums? I would say that I was calm and sane. Saying I was calm and sane is a bold assumption on your part, but I had comrades. That was the biggest thing. There's a group of women who I partially dedicated to the book to uh, I partially dedicated the book to who are women who cover the far right. And we've all faced some people having much more grotesque extremes than me. The sexualized violence of covering this stuff, having that camaraderie, having those people who understood was vital. I have the full support of my parents who would let me just treat myself on their couch and shake. What about the logistics of going undercover? Keeping track of the different identities was sometimes a challenge. There are several personas that didn't make it into the book, entire personas with backstories just because the research didn't go far enough. I had a whole alt-right woman Facebook profile where I was just trying to get into the woman of the alt women of the alt-right, and that proved a little more difficult because they are simply less stupid than their compatriots or have a little less recklessness typically. At times, I had to consciously remind myself, okay, who am I today? And what's my story today? That was definitely interesting. At the same time, so much of my socializing is online, so I was like, okay, and now I'm Talia again. It was this sort of interestingly fractured consciousness. At a certain point, as I mentioned in the book, I did have an acrid pleasure in the duplicity of saying I am exactly who you consider your worst enemy and the type of person who would provoke the most disgust, and here I am, having these intimate conversations with you and entering into your hideous circle of camaraderie. That was almost satisfying. This is going to sound like a weird question, but did you get any joy? Joy might be the wrong word out of researching this. Were there any moments over the course of researching and writing the book that you were like, hell yeah, that moment when the culmination of a five-year operation, when I seduced this Ukrainian neo-Nazi and he gave me a picture of his face with the license plate of his car where he lived. He was just totally open to me, and my story was ridiculous. I was like, I'm blonde, I've learned Russian, we did these voice notes. I would put on his, this fake voice that was an octave higher and a little more eloquent than mine, and I would record them in Russian and Ukrainian for him. I said that I learned Russian and Ukrainian in order to go to Donbass, Ukraine and meet white supremacists who were fighting on the front lines. It was the most absurd backstory in the world, and this guy was just so horny or whatever that he fell for it. He really bared his soul to me, and then I gave it right to Bellingcat. He totally had an implosion. He tried to bribe the journalists. He deleted all his profile pictures. The chat he had, co-moderated for a time, collapsed and started putting out all these messages like, don't be dumb, avoid women. That really gave me a sense of satisfaction because I feel it is part of anti-fascist work to sow dissension and prevent coherence in these groups that encourage terror. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening.